0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. <music> This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a shipwreck
1: from the American Revolution is discovered off the coast of St. Augustine. I was down, alone in the dark, uh, feeling around in in the sand. Uh, This was a target, so we knew
2: there was something there magnetic. We'll look at an extensive collection of historic Florida newspapers. One of the oldest original newspapers that we have in the collection actually dates from 1836 it's part of the Richard Keith Call collection and Call was the uh, the governor at the time in the 1830s
0: a discussion about florida vernacular architecture all that ahead on florida frontiers uh-huh. Not all of the American colonists supported the American Revolution. Many remained dedicated to King George III and England. As the American Revolution progressed, these Loyalists became refugees and fled the colonies. From 1763 to 1783, Florida remained under British control so many Loyalists came here. Sixteen ships carrying Loyalists were lost making their way to Florida. One of those shipwrecks has been discovered in the waters off of St. Augustine. Chuck Mead spoke about the discovery for the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute. Mead is director of the Lighthouse Archaeological Maritime Program,
1: or LAMP. LAMP was founded in 1999. We are the research arm of the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Museum. And uh, our focus uh, is to carry out the the museum's mission uh, to discover, preserve, present, and keep alive the stories of our nation's oldest port. And of course, LAMP is an archeological research group. So we do a lot of maritime history and a lot of archeology span and really any aspect uh, of the oldest port of St. Augustine and the surrounding region uh, falls within uh, our interest area.
0: The specific identity of the Loyalist ship discovered by LAMP is unknown, so it's called the Stormwreck. Chuck Mead explains how he knew where to start looking for the storm
1: wreck. The first step is really to try to uh, look at the old historic maps and figure out how the landscape has changed. Uh, you know, We know the ships were trying to get into St. Augustine and leave St. Augustine through our inlet, which was very notorious for being dangerous uh, for ships and for changing a lot. Every time a storm would come through, the channels would shift around. So that's why we have so many shipwrecks, because of the shoals. Uh, now, of course, we can look at these old maps and kind of trace how uh, the inlet Moved over time. So uh, today, the inlet is kept in place by the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, But in the 1700s, the inlet was about three miles to the south of where it was today. So we focus, uh, you know, once we've identified where the old inlet is, we really focus our kind of high tech equipment. So, magnetometer, which detects the presence of ferrous material, iron or steel, uh, or the side scan sonar, which gives us an acoustic image, a bird's eye view of the seafloor. But we basically, it's like we're mowing the lawn. Uh, We're going back and forth and back and forth and covering an area uh, that we feel is high probability to find uh, the shipwreck sites. And, And it works. You can find them that way. Just like
0: archaeology on land, underwater archaeology is a methodical process, but comes with its
1: own unique challenges. We often cannot see what we're doing. Uh, it can be literally as black as midnight down there. Uh, we cannot usually uh, talk to uh, the other archaeologists down there with us. So you can imagine if you were doing archaeology on land, uh, blindfolded and not uh, you know gag- gagged and blindfolded. Um, but uh, you know those challenges aside, uh, you know our goals are the same to to uh, as precisely as possible record what we find and to uh, to excavate in a very controlled and systematic manner. Uh, and again, uh, you know, say you know we don't use shovels and trowels while we're down there. We have a dredge, so uh, we still will use a grid system, and we usually use a physical grid, uh, so the divers can hold on to it and feel it even in the dark. Uh, so we'll be in a one meter square area and use a suction dredge to kind of carefully suck up the sand from within that uh, area. Uh, artifacts that are exposed, uh, you know, we we'll expose a number of artifacts, we'll make drawings of each as best we can. Again, sometimes it's really hard to see what we're doing, but we can at least plot uh, the position of these things, uh, and then we'll uh, carefully recover artifacts. Uh, And so we kind of put all that, you know, a lot of times we're drawing up our plans up on the surface from uh, the sketches and the notes we do underwater, uh, but we can do a pretty good uh, job of it. So we can do pretty precise archeology. span You know, it's never gonna be the exact uh, quality on land, you know, sometimes we just can't read a bubble level, uh, so you can't get a good elevation if you can't read a bubble level. But, uh, but we have a lot of tricks, uh, too, we can use to kind of help us in those conditions. So,
0: In August 2009, Chuck Mead and his team first discovered the shipwreck dating from the American Revolution, and the excavation has continued every summer since. Mead remembers the excitement of that initial discovery.
1: Well, I, I remember it pretty well because I was the diver uh, down there. And so uh, I was down alone in the dark, uh, feeling around in, in the sand. Uh, this was a target, so we knew there was something there magnetic. And I had probed uh, with a 10-foot pipe. So we have this pipe that's jetting water through it. And that sinks into the sand just like a hot knife through butter. Uh, and so I sunk that thing to the hilt. You know, didn't hit anything. You know, I pulled it all the way back up and it's pretty heavy to manhandle, sunk it in again, uh, just a meter away, and bam. Uh there was a hard return there was something i bumped into. Uh so uh you know i used that jet of water to clear a very small area uh and then feel around so it's kind of the equivalent of a, a shovel test uh on land and began to feel objects. I could feel a stone. Uh so i immediately think of ballast stones which are common on old sailing ships. I could feel a uh concreted piece of iron, you know some uh object uh that i can't tell what it is but i know it's man-made. I know it's iron. I felt a wooden plank. Uh, So now, you know, my heart's beating pretty fast. We have wood, we have iron, we have stone. Uh, The very next thing I found uh, really kind of sealed the deal. was another large concreted object. It was round. Uh, It was hollow, I felt uh, a rim and could feel inside, and then I realized that we had a a, a big cooking pot or a cauldron. I even felt one of the the three legs on the bottom. Uh, So mm, that suggested colonial shipwreck. Uh, You know, it could have maybe been 19th century uh, shipwreck, uh, but uh, we had a pretty good feeling, and when we returned the following season and we began to find, uh, I guess the first artifact we found that told us without a doubt this is colonial period uh, were lead shot. so a small bird shot that had been cast in a particular uh, way uh, that was first uh, written about in the 17th century. Uh, and so that that really sealed the deal. And, of course, we began to find other things, uh, buckles and uh, wine glass base and other things that were definitely 18th century. So we narrowed it down from, uh, you know, it's definitely a shipwreck site to, okay, it's it's got to be a colonial period site to it's 18th century and then even to late 18th century. And then uh, the first object we found that had a date on it Uh, was a carronade, a type of cannon, and that was dated 1780. So that really nailed it for us.
0: As exciting as the initial discoveries from the storm wreck were, most of the objects could not be conclusively identified until they were brought to the surface, cleaned, and examined.
1: Chuck Mead with underwater archaeology in particular, uh, you know, different materials go through. Well, they call it a sea change uh, for a reason. Uh, submerged in salt water, uh, iron in uh, in particular will crust over. Uh, the iron corrodes. Uh, the the uh, the calcium, the other chemicals in the seawater kind of uh, interact with that corrosion product, and it forms a thick uh, crusty shell around the object. So uh, sometimes you can look at it and see what it is from the shape, but more often than not, it's kind of a jumble of different things that are just uh, uh, concreted over. It looks like concrete, so we call them concretions. And uh, really, your best bet is to uh, get them x-rayed, and that's when you really see uh, the items uh, that are inside.
0: For the past five years, Chuck Mead has led diving teams to the storm wreck, and work on the artifacts uncovered continues today.
1: Oh, definitely ongoing. It, it, uh, it takes a very long time. Uh, you know, every you know, just like they say for any archaeological excavation, every day you spend in the field, it could be four or more days uh, in the laboratory, and that's even more so uh, in maritime archaeology because. It, Gosh, uh, you know, the cannons that we pulled up, for example, they've been undergoing electrolysis treatment for more than two years, and the end is not yet in sight. So it can take a very long time in the laboratory. Uh, Of course, study is ongoing as well. You know, we treat the objects so we can stabilize them, uh, so we can actually dry them out and put them on display. Uh, But we're also doing our, you know, taking our measurements and photographs and trying to piece together uh, uh, what exactly it is uh, that we have. So, and that's really uh, uh, the fun part of it too. The, The diving is great fun of course, to be out there in the field. Uh, but the, uh, the mysteries keep on happening. You know, the discoveries uh, often happen in the laboratory once we uh, make an x-ray or break a concretion open. So uh, it's not just limited to the, the seafloor where we make our big discoveries.
0: Identifying the storm wreck is like a detective story. Each artifact uncovered is examined for clues about when the shipwreck occurred and who was on board. While Chuck Mead and his team have yet to identify the specific ship they have discovered, we know it was a British Loyalist ship from the American Revolution.
1: You know, naming your ship is kind of that—that's what you always uh, hope to do. And then, and when you can uh, tie this uh, a shipwreck, uh, the remains of a shipwreck on the seafloor, to a named ship, then you have a paper trail you can perhaps find and learn about the ship and know what its uh, historic context was. And that's when you can, you know, when you combine the documents with the archaeology, you really get to do some. Uh, some great stuff. Uh, In our case, uh, we had a gut feeling that we had one of these uh, refugee ships, one of these loyalist vessels uh, that were part of the last fleet to evacuate Charleston at the end of the American Revolution. And of course, the closest loyal port was St. Augustine, and 16 ships were lost from this fleet. Uh, the the smoking gun we found uh, we found two artifacts uh, both military buttons uh, that really helped uh, fix that identity for us uh, the first was a royal provincial button so that is a loyalist unit a loyalist army unit and so we knew uh, you know explicitly we had at least one loyalist on board our vessel uh, then the next button we found was from the 71st regiment and we know the 71st regiment they were Scottish regiment in the Royal Army they were in Charleston and they were evacuated on the the last fleet to leave Charleston, the very same fleet that lost 16 ships at St. Augustine. So that's, you know, we're pretty confident. Uh, So it's kind of the next best thing. We don't know the name of our ship, and indeed we don't know the name of any of the 16 ships that were lost, but we... uh, otherwise know a lot about the historic context. We know what its function was. We know when it left uh, December 17th uh, from uh, 1782 from Charleston. It wrecked uh, the 31st of December uh, 1782, New Year's Eve. Uh, So we have all this great historic documentation. There's a lot of information in the archives about uh, the logistics behind evacuating so many thousands of people, both civilians and soldiers, uh, from Charleston. So there's a great, rich documentary record that we're kind of tying to the archaeology so it's just a a wonderful shipwreck with all of its uh, well-preserved material culture and then this great documentary record as well. Chuck Mead is director of the Lighthouse Archaeological
0: Maritime Program in St. Augustine. He spoke about the discovery of the British Loyalist shipwreck from the American Revolution for the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch original video, check out our educational resources, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, The Society Report, and to support your Florida Historical Society. That's myfloridahistory.org.
3: Pulitzer and Hurst, they think we're nothing. Are we nothing? No! no. Pulitzer and Hurst, they think they got us. Do they got us? No. no! Even though we ain't got hats or badges, we're a union just by saying so. What's it gonna take to stop the wagons? Are we ready? Yeah! What's it gonna take to stop the scabbers? Can we do it? Yeah! Wonder we'll what we gotta do until we break the will of mighty Bill and Joe. And the world will know, and the journal too. Mr. Hurst and Pulitzer, have we got news for you. See the world, though.
0: The Archive at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa has an extensive collection of newspapers. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History. Ben, you have newspapers here dating as far back as Florida's
2: territorial period. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we, one of the oldest original newspapers that we have in the collection actually dates from 1836. And it's part of the Richard Keith Call collection. And Call was the uh, the governor at the time in the eighteen thirties. He was also the head of the Florida militia, uh, and he was attacked in one of these papers for his uh, essentially his mismanagement of one of the campaigns during the Second Seminole War as head of the Florida militia. And he wrote a letter to the editor. Uh, and that letter was published on the front page of this of this paper Um, and of course we he decided to keep a copy of that paper and remain with that collection of his original letters so we were able to to get it at the library um so that's one of the oldest uh, newspapers that we have but we have a number of papers that date from the uh, the territorial period um when florida was still a colony there were uh, very few newspapers uh, that were published there were a few uh, published in St. Augustine and one or two in, in Pensacola in the late colonial period, late 18th, early 19th century. But it really wasn't until the United States took over uh, the Florida territories in 1821 that you saw sort of a, a blossoming of the, the newspaper industry in a lot of Florida cities, including St. Augustine, uh, Tallahassee, and Pensacola. Um, in fact, the second oldest paper that we have actually dates from 1859. Right on the on the cusp of the American Civil War, uh, we have a, a paper uh, published in Tallahassee, uh, excuse me, published in, in Jacksonville. Um, it's called the Jacksonville Standard. And there are a lot of really interesting editorials And in there. Uh, a lot of it is sort of similar to what you might think uh, uh, you would see in a newspaper at the time. A lot of political information, uh, news from around the world, news from around the state, um, but also some interesting editorials, one of which is uh, calling for the, the city of St. Augustine to, uh, to sort of uh, um, become a, a modern city and get a telegraph line <laughs> and uh, to sort of keep up with the times. Uh, but it's interesting. There's a lot of interesting content in these early papers.
0: And as you said, once Florida became a state in 1845, newspapers were published uh, in, in many Florida towns. You have papers here from all over the state.
2: Yeah, that's right. It seems like uh, whenever a small uh, town would, would uh, reach a certain point or sort of start growing when they had, they felt like they had a large enough population, uh, some entrepreneur decided to start a newspaper. And oftentimes, there were several newspapers started in the same, in the same community. And at the FHS uh, library, we have a number of these small papers that maybe only had a small a small run. Uh, oftentimes, they, they didn't even make it through an entire year, so there were only a few volumes that were ever published. But what's interesting is that it gives a a really uh, fascinating look into the daily lives of of people living in these communities. You know, of course, newspapers are are mediated, right? So they're edited. Uh, So you have to sort of read between the lines. But uh, there's a lot of really great um, information about sort of where society was at um, at that time. And uh, some examples of the small papers we have would be the the Walton County Breeze that was published in 1893 or the, the Lynn Haven Citizen in, in Bay County. Uh, we have a, a newspaper called the Taft Weekly Messenger from a little town called Taft, Florida that was published in 1911, um, the Elgali Record. Some of these, these smaller papers that may have lasted a little bit longer, a lot of them were bought and sold um, numerous times, often in, in the same year. Uh, by different people who decided they could get into the newspaper business and and do it better. Um, But then with this growth, you also got a lot of competition. I've got a great example of that here with a a copy of uh, The Sun, which was published in Tallahassee in in 1908. And on this particular issue of The Sun, uh, there's a a political cartoon, and it shows a gentleman lifting up an old rotten log in the... um, on the, on the log is written, ownership and mission of the Times Union. He's referring to the Jacksonville Times Union, which was a prominent newspaper at the time. And the caption reads, did you ever raise a rotten plank and see the bugs scoot out? And you'll see a bunch of these bugs with little handkerchiefs and, uh, that, that say things like uh, you know political corruption and graft. And uh, there's a little bug with a bag full of money <laughs> running away from the plank. So it's kind of an interesting take on, on this, this competition.
0: Now today, various news outlets are known for having particular political perspectives, but these newspapers show us that that's really nothing new.
2: That's right, and, and a great example of that would be um, how the, the assassination of Kennedy was portrayed in different papers. We have two prominent newspapers at the time in, in 1963 that we have featured here. One is the Miami Herald, uh, dated November 23rd, 1963, and the Florida Times Union, which was a, a Jacksonville paper. And on the, on the front of the Miami uh, Herald, in prominent bold letters, it just says, Kennedy dead. But underneath that, the subheading uh, says, Pro Castro suspect is seized. And then at the very bottom, it says Johnson sworn in as president. Right. And the picture uh, that they decided to depict was uh, the, the back half of, of the car that, that Kennedy was riding in. Now, in the Florida Times Union, uh, the the heading actually says assassin's bullet kills Kennedy. But the very next line says Johnson vows to, quote, do my best. And then on the right-hand side, in a much smaller column, it says, police see suspect, age 24, rifle found. No mention of pro-Castro or any sort of political involvement. So it's kind of interesting to see how, and and again, this is from the same day. This is from November 23, 1963. So it's interesting to see how different editors decided to portray the same event in a different way, in the same state. So we're talking about different populations um, and different readership. Uh, and, and it's kind of interesting to see how, uh, you know, how these editors decided to, uh, to sort of view this event and, and uh, how they decided to, uh, to kind of use the information that they were given.
0: A lot of great newspapers here. We'll have to talk about them again, Ben. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida vernacular architecture includes styles ranging from basic cracker houses to Art Deco. Robert Casanello from RobertCasanello.com has more. Uh,
3: these biodegradable old farmhouses are just disappearing by the dozens every year. Uh, it's a sad uh, state, you know. See history pass us by that way without being preserved. But luckily, there are some people who are stepping up and saying, let's keep this stuff uh, alive.
4: That was Ron Hasse, who spoke to me about vernacular architecture in Florida. Mr. Hasse is an emeritus professor at the University of Florida and is the author of the book, Classic Cracker, Florida's Wood Frame Vernacular Architecture. Along with his son, David Hasse, they both run an architecture business called Hassey Design. Both Ron and David Hassey told me there are a number of native styles of vernacular architecture common throughout Florida. David Hassey tells me what is at the heart of vernacular architecture.
5: I think the 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 common core of vernacular architecture is it's, a, it's a more of a tradition than it is a kind of classic uh, rote process. For me, you know, vernacular is something that um, might have to do with cultural traditions and, and surroundings, but it's also a, uh, reacts to region, uh, and specifically maybe to vernacular architecture. We're talking about local materials, things that are available uh, at hand um, to be able to use to build structures and shelters.
4: David Hassey told me the most common example of this in Florida is what is referred to as the cracker house. He explains why the cracker house structure fits into a vernacular style.
5: Well, to speak in very general terms, kind of the classic traits of a cracker-style house is that uh, it's uh, built off the ground. It's uh, primarily a wood structure, metal roofs, deep shady porches, um, typically about run one room deep, lots of open windows for cross breezes to move air through the structure. I think items like that are pretty, pretty typical of the style.
4: Ron Hasse explains to me that the cracker style architecture, or wood frame architecture, as it is commonly referred to, is only one of four styles of vernacular architecture found throughout Florida. Here Ron Hassey tells me about the other three styles.
3: I believe that there are four faces of Florida. Uh, and if you look at the vernacular architecture of, of some significant regions where it stands out, Spanish colonial of the St. Augustine area, and it's a true precedent uh, that the Spanish brought to uh, this state. Another vernacular architecture, which is the Sarasota School of the 50s after World War II. And, then of course, we all know down in Miami Beach you've got the Art Deco. That is a significant architecture within our state. So I think there are those four, the, the wood frame architecture, the St. Augustine Spanish Colonial, the Sarasota School of Architecture, and the Miami Art Deco those are our, our, our vernacular architecture.
4: Ron Hassey works on projects where historic structures must be recreated. He told me about some work he did with historic Dudley Farms outside Gainesville and the attention he had to pay to the history of the location in designing the structures there.
3: We'll look at the, uh, the typologies that existed or that do exist in a certain neighborhood and try to respond to those and address uh, them in in a design way Uh, for instance an an example of a project we're doing right now with the dudley farm which is a historic site here in alachua county we've designed for them a uh, meeting house and educational center that uh, responds to the type of architecture that the old dudley farm had you know uh, it's modern in many respects it works as a modern schoolhouse would uh, it's open and, and uh, has all the convenience of modern technology. But, you know, it, it responds significantly uh, as a type and as an image to the uh, old
4: architecture of the Dudley Farm itself. That was Ron and David Hassey, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, Please join us right here again next week. Until then, get our daily Facebook posts at Florida Historical Society and visit our webpage at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brodmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.